0: Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Seagold by John Blaine. Volume 4. Chapter 7. Cooner Has a Visitor Wednesday passed rapidly after the four returned from Spindrift Island. Tom departed once with several errands to perform. First he had a contract for the rebuilding of the domes by a house construction firm, if he could, Then he intended on calling a lawyer friend in New Haven to discuss instituting a search for Jenkins with an eye to a possible damage suit. His third job was to see if the employment agency he had visited the day before had succeeded in making arrangements for workmen. Rick, as soon as he returned the Fairchild and staked down the Cub on the Beach, went to work on the Fractionator control panel, a highly complex arrangement of switches and relays that operated an even more complex rack of electronic controls. Familiar as Rick was with such items, some of the circuits were beyond him. But he did as he was told and tried not to bother Doug with too many questions, and the work proceeded rapidly. Tony and Scotty spent the day cleaning chrome-alloy sediment tanks, a job that meant plenty of work with rag and brush and solvent. Tom returned as they were cleaning up. He was jubilant with the news of a successful day. The employment agency had promised them 40 men to start on Monday morning. His lawyer friend had taken over the Jenkins case and a firm that poured concrete houses had promised him an answer before tomorrow noon. He had one more interesting bit of news. We're taking no more chances, Doug. I've hired some special guards from a private agency in New Haven. They'll patrol the place from five in the evening until we open in the morning taking turns, and they'll be armed. It'll cost money, but I think it's better to take no risks. You're right, Tom, Doug assented. When do we start? Friday night. We'll take turns standing guard tonight, Rick offered. Doug gave him a warm smile. Thanks a lot, kids, but with Tom and me sleeping here, I don't think we'll have any trouble. The time when we'll really need the guard is when we tear the fence down. That was news to Rick and Scotty. They looked at the partners blankly. Economy, Tom explained. We talked it over last night. We'll need the lumber for the tank shacks and the chemical platforms, and we can't just afford to buy any. So we'll have to use the fence. Rick and Scotty discussed it as they hiked into town. I guess when Tom said bankrupt, he wasn't kidding, Scotty mused. Must be hard on them, Rick said. Yeah, tough, Scotty agreed. I wish we could help more, Scotty shrugged. So do I, but what can we do? except keep our eyes open. An idea was turning over in the back of Rick's head, but he didn't say anything. They walked up the steps and into the hotel lobby, and Rick hesitated at the sight of Fred Lewis, reading a newspaper in one of the uncomfortable chairs. Was it his imagination, or did the man lift the paper higher, as though afraid they might get a good look at him? The boys cleaned up, then went downstairs to the restaurant for supper. Over omelets and French fried potatoes, Rick told Scotty what had been on his mind. I'm wondering about Cooner Stoles. Do you suppose he's spreading rumors just out of meanness, as Captain Galt says? Or do you think he's doing it for a purpose? Search me, Scotty replied. I wish we could find out. Maybe we can. Well, you read my mind, Rick grinned. Were you thinking maybe we could keep an eye on him? Why not? We haven't any other plans for the evening. It's a date then, Rick said. He wasn't sure it would do any good, but if there were a sure enough plot against the sea mine, it was time they did something about it. After supper, they went back to their room to wait until it was dark outdoors, while Scotty read a magazine sprawled out on his bed in solid comfort. Rick wrote a letter to Chada, bringing the Hindu boy up to date on the recent happenings. Listen, did you bring sneakers with you? Rick asked when he had finished. It was dark now. Sure. You better wear them. Scotty put the magazine down. You're not a scientist, chum. You're a frustrated Dick Tracy. You get more kicks out of trailing some innocent character than you do out of a nice clean experiment like that moon rocket. And you don't, of course? I'll do for the exercise, Scotty said. He swung off the bed and went to the closet. He found sneakers and put them on, and Rick followed suit. I think it's dark enough now, Rick said. I guess so. Let's go down the back way. No point in advertising things to the whole hotel. It was a sensible suggestion. The back stairs led down into a dark courtyard where restaurant supplies and similar items were delivered. The boys had discovered them the first night when Scotty made a wrong turn and almost fell down them. In a moment, they were out of doors and making their way toward the waterfront through the back alleys. If they found Cooner, it would probably be at Zookie's Restaurant. What do we do once we find him? Rick asked. Well, just stick with him until he hits the hay, I guess. Wouldn't do much good to sandback him. They fell silent again and in a few moments came out on the boardwalk at the waterfront. It was almost entirely dark in this part of town. The fishermen had secured for the night. Their draggers were tied up along the finger-like piers. Only a spotty light from Mizuki's broke the darkness. Rick made his way along the boardwalk until he reached a spot where he could look in through the dingy windows. His heart gave a leap when he saw Cooner seated at the counter, a glass in front of him. There's our boy, he whispered. I see him. Not many people in there. Stay back. Duck into the shadows if you hear anybody coming. Don't worry. I know better. The minutes ticked by with agonized slowness. Rick watched Cooner until his eyes ached. Now and then, the pudgy fisherman glanced at his wristwatch. He's waiting for somebody, Rick guessed. Yep, looks like it, Scotty agreed. They were silent again. Rick shifted his weight from one foot to the other and began to feel foolish. After all, what could they hope to accomplish here? Suddenly, Scotty gripped Rick's arm. Cooner Stoles had glanced at his wristwatch and pushed his glass away. With a word to the counterman, He started toward the door. The boys melted into the shadows and moved around a corner of the building. Cooner came out to the boardwalk, stood for a moment in front of the restaurant, and consulted his watch again. Then he turned and walked right past where the boys were hiding. Rick automatically ducked his head so that the fisherman couldn't see the white blur of his face. Their quarry walked a few yards down the boardwalk, then turned on one of the long piers, Rick and Scotty waited until the echo of his footsteps had died away. Then they slipped silently after him. They passed boats that made a darker bulk against the blackness of the water, and they heard the tide lapping at the piles under their feet. Up ahead, a dim light, like a kerosene lamp, flickered, then settled down to a steady glow. The boys crept cautiously toward it and saw that it came from the cabin of a ramshackle dragger. Evidently, this was Cooner's boat. Hugging the far side of the pier, they neared it, came opposite, and saw Cooner seated in the cabin, lighting his pipe. Rick took Scotty's arm and led him on past, out to the very end of the pier. He put his lips to Scotty's ear and whispered, Does he live there, or is he waiting for somebody? Must be waiting, otherwise he wouldn't have looked at his watch. That's what I figured. Let's get comfortable. There was a pile of lobster pots at the end of the pier. They sat down and began to wait. The water was close under them, and the air had the peculiar scent to waterfronts, a not-unpleasing mixture of salt, mud flats, tarred rope, engine fuel, and a faint but definite fishiness. Rick's eyes were accustomed to the darkness now, and he could make out Scotty's features. If he could see, he reasoned anybody else could, If he gets a visitor, duck behind the lobster pots, he whispered. Chick, Scotty nodded. Somewhere out in the bay, a fish broke water. But aside from the constant murmur of the water, that was the only sound. Inland, the town made a glow in the sky, and to their left, Rick could see lights that might have been from the plant. Scotty tensed, then Rick heard it too, the measured tread of somebody coming down the boardwalk. The footsteps hesitated at their pier, then came toward them. Instantly, they were behind the pile of lobster pots, scarcely breathing. The footsteps reached the spot where Cooner's boat was tied. Rick peered out from behind his shield and dimly made out a dark figure. Then it moved into the light from Cooner's window, and he sucked in his breath sharply. Cooner's visitor was the pale-faced Fred Lewis. Rick's fingers sank into Scotty's arm. "'I see him!' Scotty breathed. Lewis went aboard, and the cabin door slammed. On the echo, Rick was moving, Scotty right with him. Crouching low, they moved down the pier, treading carefully for fear of loose boards. There was a murmur of voices from inside, and in a moment they could make out the words. "'Don't want to risk being seen with you. Only stay a minute.' Rick edged closer. Lewis had a voice that was oddly familiar. It was the voice of one used to giving orders. You have to do better, Stores. It isn't enough for the men to refuse to work. They must be stood up to the point of violence. Cooner's voice was a low growl with a whining note in it. It ain't as easy as that. They know the law about dumping poison. It ain't no cinch to convince them. Keep working on it. We'll see that they're convinced. Now get this straight, Stores. This was the evidence they had needed. Lewis had lowered his voice, and Rick crept nearer. He had to hear every bit of that conversation. He was perilously close to the cabin, but he was careful not to make a sound, not even breathe hard. He felt Scotty close to him. Lewis's voice was so low-pitched, he couldn't make out the words. He moved closer, bent forward straining to hear, and his toe caught on the edge of the pier. Rick went over head first and landed sprawling on the deck of the boat, his arm outflung to break his fall. He struck an empty gasoline can that crashed against the cabin with an appalling racket that brought the hair on his head straight up. He struggled to his feet and promptly fell flat again, his legs tangled in a coil of loose rope. Scotty's hand pulled at his collar, and he tried to get upright, and for an awful moment he felt as though pythons had him in a death grip. Not more than two seconds had passed, but there was bedlam inside the cabin. The door flew open. Light streamed out onto the deck. Rick fought the coils of rope and saw Scotty rush by him. He saw Cooner step on the deck, saw Scotty hurtle into him like a blocking fullback. Cooner went back into the cabin with a crash, carrying Lewis with him. Scotty's strong arm pulled Rick to his feet. He shook off the coil of rope. Footsteps were pounding down the boardwalk. The noise was bringing somebody from the restaurant. There was only one way of escape. Already Cooner was coming out of the cabin again, but with more caution this time. "'Get going!' Scotty whispered urgently. Rick sucked in his breath and dove. The water enveloped him. He stayed under, swimming toward the next pier. When he came up, he heard yells from the pier they had just left. Scotty's head bobbed to the surface next to him. "'Straight ahead!' Scotty gasped. Miss the piers and stay under as much as you can. They're mad in a searchlight. The swim was a nightmare. Rick stayed under until his lungs burned. Then he came to the top, rolling like a seal to see if light was playing on the surface. Once he had to wait until the beam passed and thought his lungs would burst. Then they passed the last pier and angled toward the shore. Scotty swam close. How you making it? I'm okay, Rick said briefly. Try keep going until we get near the plant. It's not far. It wasn't far when you said it quickly, but it seemed eternity before they got to the underwater bulk of the sea inlet. Rick gave thanks a dozen times that they had worn sneakers. Leather shoes would have been too heavy, and they would have had to have dropped them. Then at last they were walking up past the inlet pipe, breathing deeply, too relieved to do more than grin at each other. There were lights on in the Quonset hut. They ran to the door and knocked. Tom opened the door, and then his eyes opened even wider. Come on in, he said. Doug rose as they entered. Good gosh, what happened to you? A little swim, Scotty managed. That's nice, Tom said. Did you take a bar of soap with you? No time, Rick said. He sank down in a chair and let the water drip from him. It was easy enough to joke now that it was over. Get out of those clothes, Doug directed. He found an electric heater and plugged it in. Good thing we saved this. We used it on cool nights last month. In a short time, the boys were wrapped in blankets, their clothes drying on chair backs, and they were busily drinking hot cocoa. Only when the cocoa was down did Doug permit them to talk. Now, let's have it, he said. The story didn't take long to tell, Rick quoted the bit of the conversation they had heard with verification from Scotty. Doug and Tom gave each other a long look. You'll take no more chances, Tom said decisively. Then his warm grin flashed. But I'm glad you did it this time, as long as you got out of it all right. Now we know for sure what we're up against, even if we don't know who the enemy is. Stulls and Lewis, Scotty said. I don't know Lewis, of course, but I'll bet he's only part of it, Tom remarked. That's my thought, Doug said. Now what do we do about it? We can't have them arrested, I suppose, Rick ventured. Not a chance, Scotty was definite. What we heard wouldn't convince a jury of old ladies, even if it did convince us. Anyway, Rick said stoutly, we're making progress. Yeah, Scotty cracked. From well-dressed detective to blanket Indian in ten minutes flat. Chapter 8 The Plane Gets Rough The partners were just finishing breakfast when Rick and Scotty arrived at the plant the following morning. Well, if it isn't the moonlight bathers, Tom greeted them. There wasn't any moonlight, Tug said. See the scientific mind in action, Tom grinned. Always the stickler for the precise facts. I was only speaking poetically. Never mind, Doug smiled. Let's put that energy to work instead of wasting it on oratory. Tony Larzo stuck his head in the door. What first? Bolt up that panel by Fractionator 1, Doug directed. Rick and I will start work on that this morning. Scotty watched Tony pick up his box of tools and depart. And then he asked How much stuff needs to be done before the plant gets into operation? Rick had been curious about that too. Well, there's the domes, of course, Doug began. You know about those. If the company phones in okay this morning, we can expect to have them up and rewired by the end of next week. Then there are the fractionators. Rick and I can finish wiring them today and tomorrow. Carster should have the units ready. Tom said thoughtfully. I think I'll take a trip into Bridgeport today and see about them. The fractionated boxes are empty now, Doug explained. But it won't take long to install and connect the units once they're delivered. Then we have to rig the chemical platforms and dumps. They're the platforms that'll hold the tanks of chemicals over the sediment tanks. When we want to add anything to the seawater, we just turn a valve. And mix until done, Tom said. The mixing arrangement was my idea. I'm a scientist, too. What did you do? Rick asked with a grin. Invent a better egg beater? Doug smiled. Just about. I wanted to use wooden paddles, agitated by hand. But Tom showed up one day with an electric outboard motor. It runs on 12 volts. Fishermen use them for trolling, I understand. But they'll work fine for us. We'll just hang one on the edge of each tank and pretend we're fishing. Smart, Scotty complimented. I've seen him advertise in sporting magazines. Well, is that all that has to be done? Not quite. We need an exhaust pipe for wastewater. The workman can install that in a day. Doug rose and picked up the kit that contained his tools. Rick, you'll work with me. Scotty, you can continue cleaning the tanks. Tony will bear a hand as soon as he finishes at the Fractionator's. Scotty departed in the direction of the tanks, and Tom hunted for a necktie to wear into town. Rick fell into step with Doug, and they walked down to the square concrete boxes where the fractional process would take place. Isn't there anything to do in there? Rick asked, indicating the vault-like building that housed the central processes. Nothing but minor adjustments. That was the first thing I did. Took two months of hard work. I think I'm beginning to see how it works, Rick said. Those electronic coefficients duplicate the electrical structure of the molecules and the minerals you want to get. That's right, Doug said, but it isn't an exact duplication. We leave enough difference in structure to form potential. You understand that? Rick thought it over. I think so. Like in a storage battery, that's what makes the current flow. A difference in potential between the positive and negative plates. That's a good way of expressing it. Well, the potential that we set up between our electronic circuit and the mineral we're after is just enough to separate the mineral from the water, so the mineral gathers around the electrodes of the plate. And then you just scrape off the gold or silver? Rick finished. Doug laughed. You make it sound easy. Actually, there's a lot more to it than that, but you're getting the basic idea. As they reached the square fractionator boxes, Tony looked up from putting his tools in the box. All done. What now? Help Scotty at the sediment tanks. Okay, Tony grunted. There goes a man of very few words, Rick said as Tony left them. He's a good worker, though, Duck told him. Well, let's see what we have here. Tony had bolted steel uprights together at the side of the concrete box numbered one. The upright supported would look like the painted aluminum chassis for a radio set They were to install the electronic control equipment on which they had worked yesterday and there, wire in the instruments and connect them to the circuits that led into the fractionator itself. While Doug consulted his wiring diagrams, Rick took a look at the concrete structure, a six- inch pipe led into one side, evidently that was for seawater. At the bottom were other smaller pipes that would lead the water out after treatment. The valves for all the pipes were outside, since the concrete structure would be full of water when in operation. There were no windows, of course, and only one door, if it could be called a door. It was like the door on a big safe, swinging on massive hinges until it fit flush into the opening. A thick rubber gasket made the door waterproof, and it could be sealed shut by turning a wheel on the outside. Rick spun the wheel with the door open and saw steel fingers stick out about an inch in diameter, push out around the rim of the door. The fingers would fit into receptacles in the door frame, sealing it against anything but a blast of explosive. The locking mechanism was protected on the inside from the water by a stainless steel plate set on a rubber gasket. He stooped low and went into the box. Projecting threaded rods showed him where the fractionator units were to be installed. There were evidently four of them. High on one wall was the inlet pipe. Lower down, the outlets thrust through, ready to be connected. The entire inside was coated with the same hard, shiny plastic Doug had used on the inside of the pressure domes. Doug called to him and he went out. They poured over the wiring diagrams while the soldering irons heated up and then they went to work. The wiring was complex, but it went smoothly under Doug's guidance. They took time for a brief lunch and then went right back at it again. Scotty reported that they would finish cleaning the tanks by nightfall. It's a messy job, he said. We have to dig off the transparent stuff they coated the insides with to protect the chrome finish. First we scrape, then we wipe with solvent. Not hard, but it's pretty damn tiresome. Late in the afternoon, Tom returned with both good and bad news. He came to where Doug and Rick were working and gave them the good news first. The construction company will have a crew out here next Tuesday to pour the domes, and the price is even lower than I expected. The bad news was that while the Carstairs company had the fractionator units ready, they had hedged when he asked about delivery. They wanted to see both the partners tomorrow afternoon. Doug looked grave. "'What does that mean?' Rick asked. That our credit has run out, and we're going to have to do some fast talking,' Tom said, addressing Doug. "'I've made a date with Kent for tonight. "'We'll run over the books, so we'll know just how we stand before we see Carstairs." Kent is an accountant who has been working on the books with Tom, Doug explained. But Tom, we can't leave the plant unprotected. The guards don't start until tomorrow night. Rick spoke up instantly. Scotty and I will stand guard for you. Tom grinned. That was what I hoped. Thanks. It won't be more than a couple of hours. You can go into town and eat and then come back at about seven. We'll leave then. Doug put his hand on Rick's shoulder. I don't know what we'd do without you two. But no detecting, Tom cautioned. We don't want you two eager beavers to get into a jam you might not be able to get out of. No detecting, Rick promised. It's too wet. We found that out the other night. Scotty walked to the door of the Quonset hut. It's almost dark out there. Rick looked up from the magazine electronics. He had borrowed from Doug. They should be back before long. What time is it? Half past eight. They won't be back much before ten, I bet. What are they doing anyway? Getting ready to give Carstairs a battle, Rick said, putting the magazine down. He joined Scotty at the door. This finance stuff is beyond me. What's it all about? Why should Carstairs hold up delivery? They're afraid they won't get paid, Rick explained. It's because new plants like this get started on credit. They buy the stuff to be paid for when they get operating. You mean the manufacturers give you the stuff that you need to make the money to pay them back? Well, that's it. Sounds weird, huh? But it always works that way. But they only let you have the equipment if your credit is good. Now, Tom and Doug are close to being broke, and I guess their credit isn't so great anymore. So, Carstairs has doubts about getting paid. Scotty had stopped listening and was staring down toward the waterfront. "'What is it?' Rick asked quickly. "Thought I saw a light.' Rick stepped close to the screen, straining to see. After a moment, he caught the faintest suggestion of a flickering light down below the sediment tanks. "'I saw it,' Rick said softly. "'Down by the Fractionators.' The boys looked at each other. The gate was closed and they hadn't heard it open. Silently, Scotty reached under the table and picked up a heavy steel pinch bar. Rick found an electric lantern of the type that holds two dry cell batteries. No noise, he whispered. Scotty nodded and slipped out through the screen door, Rick right behind him. Rick's heart was beating fast. If they caught a prowler, they might be able to get answers to some of their questions about the troubles at the plant. He motioned toward the process vault. Scotty moved silently into its shadow, and Rick joined him, peering around the corner. He saw the light again, a thin beam like that of a pencil flashlight. It was partially shielded by the fractionator panel. The thought leapt into his mind that someone was trying to destroy the work they had done that day. He left the shelter of the process vault and ran, picking up a sizable rock as he went. There was no idea of concealment now. They couldn't let that wiring job be destroyed. Scotty ran at his side, the pinch bar held ready. Rick called to him. Be careful! They reached the fractionators and ran around them, weapons raised. But there was no one inside. Rick stopped and switched on the electric lantern. The beam cut a white swath through the night down to the waterfront. He flashed it around, searching for a sign of the prowler. I don't see him, Scotty said. Rick switched off the light and waited. After a second, he heard the sound of brush crunching under running feet, a sound that came from outside the fence. He's gone, Scotty exclaimed. He must have heard us and beat it down to the waterfront and skipped around the fence. Do we go after him? Rick considered. No, he said finally. We shouldn't leave the plant. Let's look around and see what he was after. He turned on his light and shot it at the Fractionator control panel, but it seemed intact. To make sure, he opened the back and looked into the circuits. The wiring had not been disturbed. Funny. What do you suppose he was after? He walked back to the front of the concrete structure and shot his light around. It came to rest on the door. Open, he said. We closed it. He shot the light inside and the rays gleamed on something metallic. "'What is that?' Then Scotty gasped. "'That looks like a dynamite cap.' Rick was already going through the door, his light on the coppery thing. "'Be careful,' Scotty urged, pushing in behind him. "'We may have got here just as he was fixing to blow up the fractionators.' Rick knelt and Scotty crouched beside him. It was a dynamite cap, all right, but it wasn't connected to anything. Scotty reached out and picked it up. "'No fuse?' No dynamite? Now what the heck do you suppose? They whirled suddenly as air pushed against them. Hey! Scotty yelled, and he threw himself forward. It was too late. The door slapped into place, and there was a click as the bolts shot home. They were trapped. Both boys threw their weight against the door, once, twice, And then Rick called a halt. Don't bother. We couldn't open this with a battering ram. Scotty straightened up. What a pair of saps we are, he moaned. There were two of them. They mouse-trapped us. They could wreck the place while we're in here. Rick, too, had seen at once what had happened. One man had run away, deliberately making enough noise to be heard. The second man had waited in the darkness, perhaps behind the second fractionator, until they found the dynamite cap and went in to investigate. It had been a simple thing to slam the door shut and bolt it. Even now the other man would be coming back and they could wreck the unprotected plant at leisure. Cooter and Lewis, Rick said bitterly. Well, who else? Rick, there's got to be a way out. Rick shot the light around without comment, showing Scotty that the door was the only way. Listen. Scotty said suddenly, Do you hear anything? Rick tensed, holding his breath. After a moment, he heard it faintly through one of the heavy walls. The noise of the engine pump. On his heels came a gurgle that made his heart almost stop. Water. As he shot the electric lantern at the inlet, water started to gush out. Then they were ducking back against the nearest wall while salt water poured into the concrete box and splashed against their legs. Rick turned his light downward to the outlet pipes. The water should run right out again. but the rising flood passed the outlets and kept rising, the outlets were closed off. "'We've got to get out of here or we're going to be drowned,' he gasped. "'But how?' Scotty's voice was almost lost in the roar of the water. The door was the only way. Rick crouched behind it, shooting his light over it. The rubber seal protruded a little, but that was no help. He remembered the steel bolts that had thrust out when he turned the wheel that morning. The locking mechanism, Scotty yelled. Can we get at that? The steel plate, Rick had noticed, was secured by a dozen screw heads. If they had a chance, that was it. He reached into his pocket and brought out his scout knife. Thanking his guardian angel, he had acquired the habit of always carrying it. There was a screwdriver blade on it. He unsnapped it, handed Scotty the light, and went to work. The water was up to their ankles now, rising fast. The first screw was stuck. Rick took the knife in both hands and turned, and the screwdriver blade gave a little. Sweat started out on his forehead. The screw gave and started to turn. Working as fast as he could, he spun the knife, got the screw started well, and then went to work on the next one. Scotty bent and finished removing the first screw with his fingers. Two screws. Three were loosened. And the water was up to their calves, almost at the bottom of the door. Four screws. And then the fifth stuck. Scotty wrapped the metal under it with his pinch bar. Rick tried again, and it came free. The sixth. And then they had six to go. The water reached the bottom of the circular steel plate and covered the lower screws. Hurry up, Scotty pleaded. Rick shifted to the lowest screws, took one out, then another. Then the ninth stuck, too, and it was under water. Scotty swung the pinch bar and water splashed, and the screw held. Water was rising fast. Most of the steel plate was covered now. Rick worked frantically his hands under water. The screw refused to yield. He twisted hard, and the screwdriver blade gave again. The water covered the steel plate entirely. Rick was crouching low, only his shoulders above the water now. He skipped the stubborn screw and fumbled for the next one. Scotty held the light at the surface of the water, and Rick's hands were green in the beam as he worked at the screw. It came free. Three to go and one of them was stuck. The water was up to his neck as he crouched. He pressed his lips tightly together and went after the tenth. His wet hands slipped as he twisted, and the knife dropped. Rick fell to his knees, groping for it. He found it, but precious seconds had been lost. The water was up to his chin. The screw gave. Two to go, including the one that was stuck. He fumbled for the slot, twisted, and the screw refused to yield. He took a deep breath and went back to work, nose and mouth under the water, and the screw held. He straightened up, filled his lungs, and went back at it. Gripping with both hands, he twisted. The screw gave slightly, and the knife fell apart in his hands. Rick stood up, holding the knife in the light, Scotty held. The rivets holding it together had given under the strain. With shaking fingers, he pulled the knife completely apart and separated the screwdriver blade from all the rest. Then he plunged back under the water and fumbled for the screw slot. It hurt his fingers cruelly, but he grit his teeth and twisted. The screw finally gave. He turned it rapidly and pulled it loose. Now only the badly stuck one was left, and it would never give now with only the fragment of the knife for leverage. But Scotty was moving into action. He reached down and found the rim of the steel plate. Then with his fingers, he pulled it loose enough to insert the pinch bar. He threw his weight on the bar and the plate came loose, pivoting down out of the way on the remaining screw. Rick was under the water instantly, his sensitive fingers probing in the lock's inner workings. He felt an oddly shaped wheel to which the metal bars were fixed. His racing mind reconstructed the picture. The outer wheel turned the inner one, and the bars, which were pivoted on the inner wheel, slid the locking bolts into place. He grabbed the wheel, but his hands couldn't get a grip through the intervening locking bars. Then he had to come up for air. The water was above the door level, up to his shoulders when he stood up. The bar, he yelled, and took it from Scotty. Hold me down! He went under, and Scotty's hands found his shoulders and forced him down. It had to be now. His searching fingers found the locking wheel and guided the pinch bar in. Then, braced against Scotty's hands, he pushed with all his strength. The wheel moved a fraction of an inch. He pushed again and felt it give a little. The pressure of the bar was turning the wheel, withdrawing the locking bolts. He kicked as a signal, and Scotty let him up. He gasped for air in the rapidly filling chamber. "'The water was up to his chin, standing. "'Filling his lungs, he went under again "'and found the place for the pinch bar "'and threw his weight against it, legs driving. "'The wheel turned slowly. "'Rick kept pressure on it, ignoring his burning lungs. "'Scotty pushed from above, holding him under, giving him leverage. "'The bar was suddenly loose in his hands. "'He started to yell, but his mouth was full of water. "'He shot forward as though catapulted. "'There was an instant of chaos, Then he was gasping clean, cool air. He staggered to his feet in time to see Scotty pile out of the Fractionator in a surge of water. Scotty took Rick's arm and squeezed it. Boy, I thought we were a couple of drowned dumplings for sure. Rick nodded weakly. The water stopped its turbulent rush as it spread over the ground. He looked around him and saw no one. Only the beat of the pump engine broke the silence. The light was still working. Scotty flashed it around and it came to rest on the Fractionator panel. Aluminum gleamed dully through the black paint. They walked to it still unsteady. The control panel was a battered mass of twisted metal. Scotty went back and searched until he found the pinch bar. Water was still running out of the concrete box, but slowly now. Silently, they walked down to the pump house and shut the engine off. There was no sign of anybody in the plant grounds. They did a good job, Rick said bitterly. Yeah, almost too good, Scotty replied with a shudder. I can't figure out why they turned the pump on, Rick said. They had us trapped. They could have wrecked everything with no trouble from us. They stopped walking and stared at each other in the dim starlight. They must have deliberately set out to get us, Rick said. And the knowledge was an icy ball in the pit his stomach.